Greetings, friends and family. Today, or this weekend, rather, is the weekend of Sunday, September the 27th. And we are going to continue looking at the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Viktor Frankl was a prisoner in Nazi concentration camps during World War II, and because of that, and as such, he was very well acquainted with suffering, with deprivation. For years, he saw life at its worst, and he observed that some of his fellow prisoners survived the, the horrors of prison camp, while others did not, and he became curious as to why this was, and in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, Frankel shared the conclusions he came to after carefully studying his fellow captives. He wrote this, he says, Everything can be taken from men but one thing, the last of human freedoms, the ability to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. Some people choose to embrace an attitude of optimism, like the 90-year-old man who married a 24-year-old girl, and for the wedding he bought a new suit and two pairs of pants, then he financed a new house with a 30-year mortgage located next to an elementary school so their future children wouldn't have far to walk. Others, for whatever reason, choose instead to look at life from a pessimistic perspective, like the little boy who was preparing for a test and his dad, he told his dad, I'm, I'm going to fail this test because I don't understand the material. And his father responded, son, you have to be positive. And the son, the boy said, okay, I'm positive. I'm going to fail this test. You know, Paul was an individual who chose the only path that leads to joy. He decided to look at life through optimistic eyes. Now, when I say optimism, I'm not referring to wishful thinking or to being naive, naivete. Um, no, this is maturing believers like Paul. Optimism, you see, is based on faith. It's a conscious decision to look at life from the perspective that confidence in the Lord and confidence in the fact that the Lord provides. It's a commitment to put our trust not in the ever-changing circumstances of life, but rather in our God, who, as James says, does not change like shifting shadows. That's James chapter 1, verse 17. And one of the many blessings of choosing this attitude, one of the benefits of deciding to put our faith in Jesus is that we are able to notice or to see things that other more pessimistic people miss. People refer to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7, when he said that people who don't put their confidence in Christ are looking only to the surface of things. Paul was an individual who decided to look at his life through the eyes of faith. He faithfully obeyed the instructions of his designer. And when, he, when we follow this example, when we, and when we make this choice to embrace a faith-based optimism, well, our, our eyes are opened, our vision clears, and we're able to see amazing things that, to be quite honest, otherwise we would miss. In Isaiah chapter 60, verses 4 through 5, the, the creator, our designer God, promises us this when he says, Lift up your eyes and really look about you. Then you will look and be radiant, and your heart will throb and swell 
with joy. So th- this weekend, this, this Sunday, we're continuing our study of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, and, and I want us to look at it very hard and, and with both eyes fixed intently on the content, partic- particularly of verses 12 through 26 of chapter 1, because I think we'll see and, and hopefully understand two, two principles that this faith perspective taught Paul. So we're going to turn to Philippians chapter 1 and hear God's word beginning with verse 12 through verse 26. Paul's chains advance the gospel. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by my life or by my death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I, I'm, I'm torn between the two. I desire to be to depart and to be with Christ, to be with Jesus, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in, your, in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Let me pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be wholly pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Okay, so according to these verses, what did Paul's faith-filled perspective in life enable him to see that other people, blinded by their faith, less pessimism might miss? Well, first of all, This attitude made it possible for Paul to see what tough times, what trials and tribulations could do. Now, that may not sound like the startling of a revelation. I mean, all of us clearly see the consequences of hardships. But do we really? I think I tend to focus only on the surface So I only see the bad that comes from bad, whereas faith made Paul able to look deeper and see that afflictions such as his being chained to a Roman soldier while he awaited trial and possible death, trials, bad things like this could also do good. God used Paul's faith to shed light on the fact that there was unique advantages that could be found in the midst of his current difficulties. Now, now that they were any less difficult, they're not any less difficult, mind you. 
but it's a it's an opportunity. We always stand on the threshold of opportunity. You know, Paul had always wanted to come to Rome so that he could preach and do missionary work in this this capital of at the time the known world. Acts 19:21 records that while he was in Ephesus, Paul had outlined the places he wanted to go and spread the good news of salvation. That good news found only in Jesus. And and this is what he said. After I have been to Jerusalem, Macedonia, and Achaia, I must visit Rome also. In Romans 1.15, he added, I am eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. Well, sitting in that cell, Paul could now see that thanks to his arrest in Jerusalem on false charges and his appeal to the emperor had been given an all-expense-paid cruise to da 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 Rome. And not... And not only had his trouble in Jerusalem brought him to the city with his faith-empowered eyes, he was able to see that this trip and his imprisonment that followed made many wonderful things possible. For example, in verse 12, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So Paul could see that far from ending his missionary activity, his imprisonment had actually expanded it. In fact, his bonds had destroyed barriers, freeing him to share his faith in places he would have not otherwise have been able to do. The word advance here is translated furtherance. And in some scripture versions comes from the Greek word prokopen, which literally means to cut before. This was the word that was used in Paul's day to describe the activity of a detachment of special woodcutters who always preceded the regular army and cut roads through an otherwise impenetrable forest. Thanks to their work, the army would be able to advance farther into areas it could not have gone. And Paul saw that his suffering opened the way. It blazed a trail over which the gospel could extend where it would not have been able to in any other means. So when he arrived at Rome, he had, he had first been in prison, but eventually he was given his own private apartment. And in this apartment, he was constantly under guard, chained, literally chained with a short length of chain to a soldier, a member of the Praetorian Guard. Now understand that the Praetorian Guard were not just any run-of-the-mill soldiers. They are the very elite, the Imperial Guard of Rome. And the unit, their unit had been founded by the, uh, the Emperor Augustus himself and were made up of a body of about 10,000 hand-picked troops, the best of the best, the elite. They were literally the power behind the throne of Rome. It was to the prefect of the Praetorian Guard, the commanding officer of this crack unit to whom Paul was handed over to when he first arrived in Rome. So do do we begin to see the picture here? Do I begin to start to understand 24 hours a day, six hour shifts each one after another of these select soldiers was chained to the Apostle Paul and forced to be with him. They heard conversations Paul had with his visitors as they discussed spiritual things. They listened as he dictated his epistles. They were constantly bound to this man who prayed without ceasing. Paul's faith enabled him to see that his imprisonment provided the opportunity for the gospel of Jesus Christ to penetrate into the ranks of the most powerful men in the empire. 
and from them into the city of Rome, and from Rome to soldiers stationed literally all over the world. He would never have had that kind of opportunity have he not been imprisoned. In verse 14, he writes, It has become clear throughout the whole palace guard that I am in chains because of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul's chains gave him contact not just with the Praetorian Guard, but also with another group of people, the the officials in the emperor's court. Paul was in Rome as an official prisoner. And in this case, he was an important one. You see, the Roman government had to determine the official status of this new, quote unquote, Christian sect. And they wondered, was it merely another sect of the Jews or was it something new and possibly dangerous? Imagine how pleased Paul must have been knowing that thanks to his imprisonment, the court officials themselves were forced to study the doctrines of the Christian faith. So Paul could see that his troubles had been good for the spread of the gospel. And in verse 14, we see another thing that Paul's optimism, faith optimism, enabled him to see. Look at what he writes. He says, because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously, more fearlessly. The word brethren would refer not to pastors and church leaders, but to the laity, men and women in the local churches of Rome. And the word speak does not mean to preach, but rather refers to everyday conversation, coffee talk, and the cafes and bistros of Rome. In other words, the way Paul had responded to his very unpleasant circumstances was an inspiration to the other Christians in Rome. And before his imprisonment, they had been fearful to share their faith. But now they were boldly sharing Christ in their everyday conversation. His circumstances invoked courage to the Roman Christians. They decided that if God could use Paul in prison, he could certainly use them outside of prison. Paul's courage gave them courage to share their faith throughout the the, the capital city. So because of Paul's imprisonment, Jesus began and was literally the talk of the town. Even Paul's enemies were motivated by his example to spread the good news of Jesus more boldly. Now, their motives were not pure. They were jealous of Paul and wanted to undermine his authority, so they preached to compete with Paul. But this didn't bother him either because he chose he had chosen a joyful attitude. He had pulled back and looked at the, their activity from God's perspective, and he saw that the motive in their preaching didn't really matter. Ministry did. And as he wrote in verse 18, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Jesus Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So Paul could see that his imprisonment helped the spreading of the gospel. It strengthened local Christians in their evangelistic efforts. And he could also see that it benefited him personally. In verse 19, he writes, What has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, this word deliverance does not mean personal safety. So Paul was not saying that he knew he would be released from prison and be safe in that sense. And neither was he saying that his suffering made him more secure somehow in the hope of heaven. Paul knew and regularly preached that we are saved not by what we endure, but rather by what Christ endured. 
Let me say that again. Friends, we are not saved by what we, quote unquote, endure, but rather but what Christ endured. Not because of our suffering, but because of his. No, the word here for deliverance literally means personal well-being. Paul was saying that he could see that God was going to work in this suffering to mold him into a better person. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18, Paul writes about this principle and he says that all this suffering is for your benefit. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed every single day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, not on what we can watch, not on what, not on what media we observe, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen, well, that's eternal. The lesson history has taught us is that truly great souls always graduate from the school of conflict, never from the school of convenience. Tough times are good for us. Brian Harbour writes, when, when there is no calamity, there's no courage, there's no hardship, there's no hardiness, no stress, no strength, no suffering, no sympathy, no sympathy no cross, no crown. Well, thanks to his chosen faith attitude, Paul did not complain about his change. He consecrated them. He saw them just as God had used Moses' rod and David's sling. He was just as surely using these pieces of metal links for his benefit. Paul saw what his trials could do. And we must learn from Paul. I have to learn from Paul to back off and to look at my problems from this angle so that I too can envision the benefits of the bad times. Not unlike the times, friends, that we are living in now. This is not easy. It's not, it's not our natural tendency. Our natural tendency is to focus on the problem itself. But the more we look at the problem, the bigger it gets until my perception becomes completely, completely distorted. Only when in faith we can step back and look beyond the problem do we see, as Paul did, all the blessing, what trials and tribulation can bring. So what's our handicap this morning? What's, what's our circumstance? What is it that binds our life? What causes us to suffer? I mean, really suffer. What is it? Well, well, can we rejoice in them because God can use them to do great things for us in our life and in the lives of others? Every experience of suffering is a great crossroads in our lives. We can respond in anger, become bitter. Or I can learn with Paul to look at suffering as the chisel God might be using to sculpt some kind of marge center into a saint. So Paul's perspective and enabled him to see some amazingly wonderful things that his trials and tribulations had done. He learned what tough things and what tough times can do. But this perspective also enabled him to see something else. So first of all, he, he saw what his problems could do. And then secondly, he saw what his problems cannot do. 
You see, as Paul had discovered, there's a limit to how much trials and tribulations can impact our lives. They cannot separate us from God's love. In Romans 8, 38 through 39, Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future or any powers, height or depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. They can never truly defeat us. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8-9, through 9, we are handicapped on all sides, but we are never frustrated. We're puzzled, but never in despair. We're persecuted, but we never have to stand it alone. We may be knocked down, but we are never knocked out. That's the Phillips version. I love that version. In short, God is bigger than any problem you and I will ever face, including death itself. Look at what Paul says in verse 21 of of the scripture that we're looking at today. I eagerly expect and hope that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or I love the way the Living Bible translation puts it when it says, For me, living means opportunities for Christ and dying. Well, that's better yet for me. The word Paul uses for gain in verse 21 is kerdos. It's an old Greek word for any gain or profit made in an investment. We might translate it as, a, as the word dividend. So Paul was saying, hey, if I die, I'm going to cash in my investments and will receive both principal and interest so that I can have more of Jesus Christ when, than when I was living. Okay? So from Paul's perspective, he could go on living and serving God while he's in chains, or he could die and go home to be with him. Either way, he wins. And so again, for the believer, for the follower of Jesus Christ, what are we afraid of? We should be the most brave and most confident and secure people we know. Because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. In his text, he reminds us that the Christian who chooses to look at life from a faith perspective can see that even the worst that can happen, death itself, is really the best thing that can happen. There's a very real sense that Paul here is saying that as believers, you and I have the same power because nothing can really harm us. Thanks be to the power of God for all. Even death only brings us to eternity in God's presence. Since Jesus has defeated death for us, we are literally untouchable. Nothing can really hurt us. It's why it's so hard for me to understand when, because of trials, some believers decide to give up their faith in God. My my mental response is, give up for what? What else is there? Everything else in life comes up short. There is nothing else to help you and protect you when tough times come. Somehow everything else falls flat, doesn't it? When money is my objective, we must live in fear of losing it, which makes me paranoid and suspicious. When fame is my aim, then I become competitive against others. I, ups, uh, you know, lest be upstaged by some which, which, which would make me envious. When power or influence drive me, well, then we become self-serving and strong will, which makes me arrogant. And when passions become our God, then I become materialistic, thinking enough is never enough, which makes me greedy. Only Jesus can satisfy whether we have or don't have, whether we are known or unknown, whether we live or die, only Jesus can satisfy. 
In the eighth chapter of John's gospel, there's a record of an incident early in Jesus's ministry where he begins to teach his followers about the cost of following him. And as a result, many of many of Jesus's disciples left him. When this happened, Jesus turned to the twelve and said, you do not want to leave too, do you? John chapter eight, verse 67. And Peter replies, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. As Paul taunted in 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57, O grave, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's faith-based optimism enabled him to see some things that most people miss. Trials, hardships can do a lot for us. They can actually benefit us. But Paul could also see from his vantage point that there are limitations to the harm that trials can cause. There are things that they can not do as well. So this weekend, today, I, I invite you to pray with the psalmist and say, God, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. That's Psalm 119. Let's all ask God to help us choose to look at life with an optimism that comes from our faith, our faith in him, in him alone. If you're listening today, if, if, you're, if you're here this weekend and, and you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a, a believer, if you're not a Christian, then I hope and pray that today's worship has opened your eyes to see that we all have a need to follow Jesus as our Savior and Lord. You have that need. I have that need. God promised way back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 4, 29, that if you seek the Lord with your God, you will find him. If you look for him with all your heart and your soul, he's not going to hide from us. If we've never made that commitment to follow Jesus, I, I, I urge you to seek him today. I want to close today with a benediction found in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and with all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. And go in peace.